I'll just note, by the way, that in with my own students, most of whom are going into student affairs, I talk all the time about how um, understanding higher ed finance is a key competency and it is going to be crucial in your career moving forward. It's important from an advocacy perspective. It's important in terms of the sustainability of the field. Um, and, you know, the reality is that uh, financial knowledge is only going to be to your benefit moving forward in, in your career. Hello, and welcome to Student Affairs Now. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Today, we're talking about the financing of higher education. We'll cover some of the basics, as well as take a look at some of the cutting edge issues for the future of higher education. We have three experts to help us really unpack all of this, and I can't wait to explore this with each of you. Student Affairs Now is the premier podcast and online learning community for thousands of us who work in, alongside, or adjacent to the field of higher education and student affairs. We release new episodes every week on Wednesdays. Find details about this episode or browse our archives at studentaffairsnow.com. Today's episode is sponsored by EverFi, the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities. EverFi is the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Today's episode is also sponsored by Anthology. Learn more about their innovative data-driven platforms to build and foster your campus student engagement experience. Learn more by visiting anthology.com engage. As I mentioned, I'm your host, Keith Edwards. My pronouns are he, him, his. I'm a speaker, consultant, and coach, and you can learn more about me at keithedwards.com. I'm broadcasting today from Minneapolis, Minnesota at the intersections of the ancestral homelands of the Dakota and the Ojibwe peoples. Let's get to our conversation. Uh, let's meet each of you. Tell us a little bit about you and your background, and then we'll get into some of the basics and then some of the cutting edge issues. Uh, Nate, let's begin with you. Thanks, Keith. Uh, Nate Don Barnett. I'm an associate professor of higher education at the University of Buffalo. I'm department chair for educational leadership and policy. Um, my research focuses on college access and student success and, and thinks about the role that finances play in that. And I, I run a project locally called the FAFSA Completion Project for the City of Buffalo. And uh, I also note that uh, my career started as a student affairs professional. In fact, it was my student affairs colleagues who pointed me in the right direction and got me on the path I'm on today. So I'm happy to be here. Wonderful. Well, glad to have you. Amy, tell us a little bit about you. Hi, and thanks for having me. My name is Amy Lee. My pronouns are she, hers. And I'm an assistant professor in higher education in the Department of Educational Policy Studies at Florida International University. I do research on higher education finance, and that includes studying free college programs, performance funding policies, student loan debt, uh, and state funding for higher education. I spent a year working in private sector finance before I worked in student affairs, um, primarily in study abroad. Happy to be here. Well, we're so glad to have you. Those are some topics that certainly are getting a lot of media attention. And speaking of getting a lot of media attention, Kevin, tell us a little bit about you and what you're doing. Hey, everybody. My name is Kevin McClure. I use he, him, his pronouns, and I'm an associate professor at the University of North Carolina, Wilmington, and director of communications for the Alliance for Research on Regional Colleges. Uh, I study college management, leadership, and finance with a focus on regional public universities. 
my co-edited edited book, uh, Unlocking Opportunity Through Broadly Accessible Institutions will be out at the end of the month. And I do a fair amount of public writing, um, usually in the Chronicle of Higher Education or uh, as part of a regular column at EdSurge. And uh, like my colleagues started in student affairs, um, I was uh, a residence hall director and then uh, coordinated a living learning program for three years before switching over into academic affairs for a period of time uh, prior to becoming a, a faculty member. So looking forward to the conversation. Yeah, yeah. Well, and thanks for some of that writing that you've been doing. It's been uh, mentioned on the podcast by others and floating around our social media and people are sharing and really appreciate the thinking you're doing and the, the writing and sharing and giving voice to some things some people can't really give voice to given their roles and, and things that are going on. Uh, well, let's focus on uh, really broadly the, the finance of higher education, both how institutions operate, where funding comes from, tuition, state appropriations, uh, giving, endowments, uh, but also how we operate. What are the revenues and expenses? How are things changing? Um, I think many folks uh, in student affairs have a, a, an understanding of their budget, but maybe not sort of the bigger picture and where they fit in with that. I think Amy's going to kick us off here with a little bit of finance of higher ed 101, some of the foundations and basics. Go ahead, Amy. For sure. So as Keith mentioned, um, it's important to know the key sources of where colleges are getting their money and how they choose to spend this money. For public institutions, these revenue sources are primarily composed of tuition, state appropriations, and for community colleges, it also includes local appropriations. Um, and then other sources of revenue include federally funded research and auxiliaries. And auxiliaries are fee-for-service type functions. These would include housing, dining, um, parking, or conference services. And then once institutions have this funding, how are they spending their money? On the expenditure side, the areas that institutions typically allocate for are in instruction, which is you know, the teaching mission of higher education. Then there's student support services. So some of the areas that us, we, we've worked in, um, including housing and study abroad, um, and areas like academic support services, grants and scholarships, and public service. So thinking about where institutions receive their funding and how they're allocating this funding. Right, and I think, uh, Nate, you're going to talk us a little bit about um, public versus private and some cost drivers. Yeah, no, I appreciate that. that was a, a great setup uh, for this. And, you know, I've, I've come at this from a couple of different vantage points. Most recently, um, well, as a department chair, thinking about enrollment. So we're really focused on the tuition that students are paying today and, and how, uh, how, how great a proportion of the cost of college they're paying today in comparison to, to prior years. Uh, but I also have seen it from the perspective of a board of trustee member at a local private college. And one of the things that I constantly try to remind students and families about is um, how complicated this investment is and, and how much more transparent we need to be in higher education about what college actually costs. You know, today at, at this college, we um, uh, have a tuition bill of about $28,000 a year. And students look at sticker price and they think, wow, there's no way I could possibly afford that. Um, but we were discounting at about 62%. So on average, a student was paying just shy of $11,000 a year to attend the institution. 
And very few students or families, particularly those who are first generation, understand that or know that. And so there are, there are a couple of cost drivers, I think, that are really important that uh, we do pay attention to. We've talked a lot about uh, the disinvestment of the public sector in higher education, you know, appropriations, not keeping pace with enrollments and things like that. Uh, but there are some other things as well. And, and I think that's important, and particularly in the more recent context with the post uh, great recession. But there are some other drivers as well. I think we make some decisions as institutions to invest in uh, amenities that uh, cost us more. You know, there, the quest for prestige is real on our campuses and U.S. News and World Report drives a lot of the decisions that we make. Uh, but the other thing that we don't talk a lot about is that for decades, the cost of college was rising faster than inflation. But the key difference was that family incomes were rising as well. And that hasn't been true for probably 20 years or so. And that's put uh, a great deal of pressure on students and families to think as consumers about the investment they're going to make. Um, and I think that's something that um, we're starting to see come out in the way people talk about education. Mm -hmm. And it, do you think that the just the costs of doing this with more student needs, uh, more legislation, more federal requirements, just the, the operating cost has gone up as well? Yes. I do. You know, uh, the cost of complexity is, is something that we might think about here. Um, the financing has become so complicated. Policymakers are worried about the efficient use of taxpayer dollars. And so they create, for example, financial aid strategies that have lots of mechanisms in it to ensure that students don't take too long to figure out what path they're gonna be on if they graduate in a timely fashion. And those policies have a disproportionate impact on low-income first-generation gener students of color. And mm -hmm. that, that's a real concern. But as our work gets more complicated, we hire more administrators to uh, complement the work of faculty and that's driving up our costs as well. So. Those are things that we have to think about as institutions. I love this idea of cost complexity, both uh, financial aid and sticker price, but reality price and all the aids and loans and grants and all of this kind of coming in, but then also just the, the greater expenses of you know, Title IX is costing institutions a lot more money to prevent and respond and litigate um, mental health. Um, all of these things, COVID testing uh, is just one example. What is that? You know, uh, where did that come from? And so all of these costs of um, requirements, student needs, and uh, I, I love this point too about the more complicated it is, the harder it is to understand, the harder it is for students and families, um, first gen and, and, and BIPOC folks, but also others. It's harder also for legislators to understand. <laughs> it's harder for administrators to understand. It's harder for all of us to understand. I love that you're pointing out the sticker price versus the reality price. And the folks who are paying that full sticker price are helping to make possible for people who aren't paying that sticker price, right? And so um, th there's a real interesting dynamic here. Kevin, you asked about cleanup on this question. What would you clean up? What would you add? How can you take uh, the foundation that Amy and, and Nate have offered us and make it a little bit more complicated? What, what more should we understand here? Well, I like, first of all, I like the idea of, of maybe building upon the very strong foundation that my, my uh, esteemed colleagues have built rather than playing uh, cleanup. Mm -hmm. um, what I might do is just zoom out a little bit and share a couple of just 
sweep broad, broad uh, principles for understanding higher ed finance. Mm -hmm. uh, and I'll just note, by the way, that in with my own students, most of whom are going into student affairs, I talk all the time about how um, understanding higher ed finance is a key competency, and it is going to be crucial in your career moving forward. It's important from an advocacy perspective. It's important in terms of the sustainability of the field. Um, and, you know, the reality is that uh, financial knowledge is only going to be to your benefit moving forward in, in your career. But just a couple of things for, for the entire history of uh, American higher education, it has been the case that it is more expensive to provide a high quality higher education um, than institutions have revenues to support. And so we have always, always, always depended on subsidies of some in, in some way, shape or form, whether that's from donors um, or philanthropists that are supporting institutions or in the form of state appropriations. Uh, and so when you hear folks making comparisons between higher education and business, Believe me, I can certainly understand comparisons there, but one way in which there's a clear difference is that we have never ever provided a service that has generated enough revenue to cover all of our costs. And so what that means is that we're dependent on other entities in order to pay our bills. And uh, at public institutions, that has been the state in most cases, and at private institutions, that has come in the form of um, private gifts. Um, and the big shakeup that we've seen really since 1980 is that um, at least in public higher education, the reliability of that public subsidy has decreased and we've become more reliant on other sources of revenue to replace that. Uh, not coincidentally, in my opinion, that's precisely around the same time that we really started to see broadening access um, manifesting in higher education. And so precisely at the moment that higher education um, was becoming less of the domain exclusively of the white middle class and white upper class. We see this flip happening where states are not willing to invest in higher education in the same sort of way. So that's one important principle I, I think that's worth keeping in mind is that. Well, um, let me just interject here. We just did an episode with the authors of Broke uh, mm -hmm. who talked about at the UC system, as soon as these institutions got more and more diverse, more black and brown folks going there, we started funding them less and less, shifting the burden from our collective to then those folks, which leads to, as they point out uh, and illustrate, the, the racial segregation. So such a great, great perspective. What else would you add here, Kevin? Yeah, well, I mean, and, and there are some that would say that this, the, the timing there just kind of happened to work out the way that it did. Um, but I think an important, a second principle that I might offer is that in many ways, we ought to consider the quote unquote golden age of higher education finance to be the anomaly as opposed to the norm. So there was a period post-war where we saw really generous support for higher education. Um, it uh, propelled this massive expansion of the system, increased accessibility, um, and um, kind of unfortunately, you know, set, not, not unfortunately, I should say, but uh, established an expectation around affordability that um, was not the norm prior to that period and has not been the norm moving forward. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I think another important principle of our system is that it has always been set up in such a way that there is uh, extreme competition between institutions for resources. That competition drives spending. Um, institutions are competing for students, they are competing for faculty, they are competing for scarce resources. 
Uh, and um, the reason why that matters in particular today is that I think a number of policy decisions have really dialed up that competition. Um, Amy can really speak to this well when it comes to performance funding as just one example of that. Um, but when we dial up that competition, the result of it is greater spending um, on the part of institutions. That competition, unlike in other kind of economic areas, has not led to a, a decrease in costs. Um, and part of the reason that we that we see higher education struggle on the cost side to, to kind of come back around to um, something that Nate mentioned is we have not yet figured out a way to bring down costs that doesn't simultaneously dilute the quality of the education that's being provided. And so that's, you know, if we can crack that nut, then we might be able to, as they say, bend the cost curve. Um, that makes it possible for us to deliver higher education more cheaply. Um, but as it stands now, many of those efforts to cut costs come at the expense of the services and the education that are provided. Um, and in higher education, of course, um, so much from a competitive standpoint depends on the extent to which we are providing a high quality um, service or, or education to students. So anyway, I wanted to zoom out a little bit. Yeah. I, have, I, I could respond to like a couple of FAQs that I get from folks all of the time yeah. very quickly, um, that I'm sure some of my uh, colleagues also hear all the time. Um, and then we can we can move forward mm -hmm. with it. But one is, you know, wh why? How is it possible that our institutions are financially struggling while endowments are growing? Um, and, and another kind of way of thinking about this is why isn't the endowment a better instrument for helping institutions? Um, and you know, it's a great question. And we're gonna see a couple of examples of that, Keith, right? Yeah. What Ohio State's done, and I'll talk a little bit later about the Purdue. Well, and what I, one of the reasons why I wanted to do this episode is because I was seeing student affairs folks say, why is Michigan State asking for volunteers in the dining hall when they have mm -hmm. this massive endowment. Yeah. Um, so yes, help That's clear that question. up for us. Help clear that up for us. Yeah, well, and so the, where I kind of land on this is, you know, the endowment is um, designed to be the kind of financial bedrock of the institution in perpetuity. And forevermore. Forevermore. And so there are rules around spend down, meaning there are kind of restrictions in terms of how much an institution can spend down. Um, much of that money is restricted um, based on uh, a contract between the donor and the institution around how the money gets used. Um, and so what it means is that it's just not a particularly flexible resource. Um, it can't move quickly in a time of crisis. That's not to say that nothing can be done with the endowment to support the institution in times of need. And there are many people who argue uh, if this is not a rainy day, what's the purpose of a rainy day fund, right? Mm -hmm. um, but the reality is, is that being able to use the endowment in that way requires, um, in some cases, making changes, um, renegotiating contracts. Um, and, it, and like I said, there are, in some cases, laws that prevent um, spending down the endowment faster than um, what has been kind of determined to be uh, you know, a responsible level for an institution. Um, and so, uh, you know, we all would like to, I think, see endowments be used differently. And um, I am a proponent of that conversation, but in many instances, they are not in a, able to kind of rescue institutions in the way we might want them to. Right. 
Well, I hope this is a great start. Good, good start. I hope what we just did is clarify for so many folks who maybe have a basic understanding a little bit more of the bigger picture. Now that we've provided such clarity, let's make it messy again. Mm-hmm. So, Amy, what are some of the things that you're seeing that complicate this, that you're seeing as some of these cutting edge issues or on the near horizon? Yeah, so one of the topics that I think is a really important um, discussion that's happening now is free college programs. And these are also called promise programs. And I think we're in a really interesting time policy-wise with the Biden administration, because there's been buzz and interest around college affordability, although there's been limited legislation um, at the national level. There's been ongoing discussions about making the first two years of community college free for everyone, regardless of merit, you know, regardless of high school achievement, regardless of their financial need. And although this idea has faced hurdles at the federal level, you know, there's other priorities that the um, administration is working on now, COVID being one of them, of course. Uh, numerous states and localities and counties or even just single institutions um, have started their own free college programs. And these programs aren't necessarily free in that all costs are covered. Um, they typically only cover tuition and sometimes mandatory fees. Uh, but that's still a, a quite large portion of the cost that students are going to have to pay. Um, and what these programs do is that they incentivize students to enroll full-time directly after high school because we know from the research that full-time enrollment um, helps with completing a credential in uh, like a specific amount of time and um, these programs will typically cover up to the completion of an associate's degree so the majority of these programs are at the two-year college level. But one of the critiques is that um, these free college programs, even though they're deemed as free, they don't cover other costs such as housing and transportation and books. Um, So that's one of the critiques there. Mm -hmm. However, on the positive side, research that myself and others have conducted on these free college programs show that they do increase college entry. Um, programs do seem to incentivize students who otherwise would not attend college. Um, and it has actually increased, like I wouldn't necessarily call this access, but it, it does increase that initial enrollment in college. Mm-hmm. Um, because these programs are relatively new, there's emerging research that's being done on whether they improve retention and degree completion. And one of the areas that I'm looking at um, as a next step in my research is on whether specific student support programs, you know, such as mentorship, coaching, advising, first-year experience programs, Mm -hmm. whether these actually help keep students there and help them graduate. Mm -hmm. So I would say, you know, free college programs is a hot topic in higher education. And a second topic, which um, I've done a lot of research on, is on performance funding, which Kevin mentioned earlier. And these are policies that are at the state level which allocate appropriations based on student outcomes. And these outcomes would be retention rates, degree completions, graduation rates, and um, retention and completion for underserved students. So students of color, however that's defined, um, typically Black and Latinx and Native American students, sometimes Pacific Islander 
students um, or students who are from lower income backgrounds or first generation students. And these policies have been in place for a number of years, but I think a, a topic right now of interest is the sustainability of these performance funding policies during the COVID pandemic, because uh, we've experienced um, market declines in enrollment in higher education and states are finding that this performance-based funding or outcomes-based funding, you know, looking at metrics such as degrees, it's still very much enrollment driven. And enrollment declines directly affect these commonly used performance metrics. So, you know, one of the questions is how are states adapting to these changing external environments which are caused by the pandemic? Um, existing research that colleagues and myself have done find that performance funding does privilege better resource, more selective institutions, for example, flagships um, over lesser research institutions uh, that enroll more underprivileged students because the, the, the policies sort of reward you know, graduation and completion and the institutions that are enrolling students that are from more academically privileged backgrounds are, you know, seeing benefits from performance funding. Mm -hmm. So in some ways, this policy does increase that stratification of mm -hmm. higher education where more resources just keep going towards the better resource schools you know, the ones that are more selective, the ones that do have the ability to kind of chase rankings. Mm -hmm. um, so perhaps the pandemic has exacerbated some of these existing sure. inequities when it comes to finances and resources. Around well, it reminds me of what we've done with K-12, right? We say the, the schools with the best performance indicators should get the funding and schools that don't <laughs> mm -hmm. should, uh, will starve them until they get their act together when they're enrolling the most needy, uh, uh, students who have the greatest need and rather and, and it just increases the stratification rather than fixing it, which was the stated intention, it it increases mm -hmm. that the, the haves and have nots. Is that what we're seeing? Exactly. That's exactly right. You know, it's kind of a mirror of K-12 where mm -hmm. the um, the schools, the, the universities that are serving the most needy students and ones that we really need to be pay atten paying attention mm -hmm. to um, are the ones getting penalized with mm -hmm. these types of policies. Although I will say, you know, to be fair, uh, I think performance funding does draw attention to student success, you know, mm -hmm. and making sure that we not only get students in the door and, you know, focus on these enrollment numbers, but also that we're doing a, a good service to these students that they are end up, they are ending up, um, graduating with credentials that will ultimately help them in the labor market and moving forwards. Great. Uh, Nate, what's what's kind of on the cutting edge for you? Yeah, so there are a couple of things that I wanted to mention, but I want to pick up on a couple of things that Amy said and kind of underscore them a little bit. Um, I, I will tell you as a former policy analyst, uh, performance funding drove me nuts. Mm -hmm. So I was in Michigan and Michigan, the universities are constitutionally autonomous. And so they, are bickering over resources all the time. And, and we were uh, registered lobbyists for the, in the state uh, on behalf of higher education. And the biggest challenge we ran into with performance funding measures was that they, they changed so frequently. I think, you know, in the, the span of the legislators we worked with, they had three different variations of those metrics. And uh, it made it difficult for institutions to try to plan and, and adapt. And so, um, I think there, it's an interesting policy area, complicated for the kind of work that we do on campuses. On the, on the promise programs, 
you know, I, it's one of the areas that I spent a lot of time in as well. And when I was in Michigan, uh, Kalamazoo had announced its tuition guarantee and it became a model for the state. And one of the really important lessons that we learned there was it's one thing to do this with private dollars. And in Kalamazoo, it was private anonymous dollars. Um, it's another thing to try to legislate that and turn it into a state of investment in communities. And we had the opportunity to consult with the governor, uh, governor's advisors on education uh, to create the promise zones. And there are 10 or 15 of those now. And one of the real drawbacks to that was they set up a funding mechanism that was tied to increased tax, tax dollars coming into the state aid fund. And if you increased your uh, property values, basically, you were, as a community, going to be able to capture some of that to pour into your scholarship program. And basically what we were doing with state dollars was incentivizing some communities over others. And so for every community that needed it, like Lansing or Detroit, there was a Flint or uh, you know somewhere in Grand Rapids that wasn't covered, right? And so uh, it becomes really, uh, it's one thing to do it with, with the private support. It's another thing to try to figure out how to do this with public dollars. But the two strategies that I wanted to talk about that are, have been on my radar in terms of helping families finance education. One is maybe not new, but it's new in terms of scale. And that's what Ohio State has recently uh, announced in terms of eliminating debt from uh, students' financial aid packages. Lots of institutions have done this, but none at the scale and size of of an institution like Ohio State. And a couple of things that I find useful and important about their strategy is, one, they are thinking about endowment, going back to what Keith had talked about, but that's not the only piece. They're talking about uh, work. So having students work, sort of a, an institutional work-study approach, combined with some financial literacy. As, finan as financial aid becomes increasingly complicated, uh, students and families need to understand the investment that they're making. They have to understand the implications of the choices they make while they're in school to take advantage of that financial aid. And, it's, and I think the combination of those features makes what Ohio State is doing different from some of its predecessors. Michigan, when I was at the University of Michigan, they had announced something like this 15 years ago, but having a, an income ceiling prevented them from really doing it for every student. The second one that I'm, I'm interested in, and it again goes back to the, the endowment pieces, is what Purdue chose to do a while back with the income share agreements. The idea, this is really comes from conservative policymakers, um, the idea that we would invest in human capital contracts, and that would be a private market. But this is an institution saying we're going to commit endowment dollars to basically cover the cost of, of students in our institution. And in exchange, they will pay back some portion of that uh, or some portion of their income for a certain period of time up to and including um, some amount of money. Mm -hmm. And what that does is it fundamentally shifts the risk of that investment from the student and the family to the institution, mm -hmm. uh, where we typically would shift more of it to the state. And, and I think there's some promise for institutions that have the resources to do that. I think it's a great strategy then we have to think differently about the institutions that don't. So those are the two that I'm really watching. Great, thank you. Kevin, what's uh, on the cutting edge for you? 
too many things probably <laughs> um, paying, trying to pay attention to too many things. Although I will say that, that the things that both Nate and Amy mentioned are things that I'm paying less attention to. So we've got a good, good complimentary <laughs> panel here. Um, you know, one of the things that really bothers me is, is uh, just the absolutely disgusting inequality within American higher education. Um, you know, the rich are getting richer and that's bad for a number of reasons, uh, including the fact that it's not uh, ensuring that we are resourcing institutions that are serving students that are coming with the greatest need in many instances. We've of course got all sorts of attainment goals that have been put out there. Um, and if we're gonna move the dial on those attainment goals, we need to be putting more resources into our broad access institutions. Um, and, and instead, unfortunately, you know, the gaps and resources are just widening. Um, and many of the policy solutions that, that are being talked about are not doing anything about that. Um, you know, a lot of the big storylines in higher ed finance recently have been, you know, huge one-time donations from incredibly wealthy people, not helping a whole lot from a, a systemic perspective. Uh, there is looking to be a fairly historic investment from the Biden administration into American higher ed, including some great investments in minority serving institutions. Again, these are probably not going to be sufficient to really address longstanding um, discriminatory, racist, um, you know, funding policies that have created a very, very unequal system. So that's one of the things that that I'm paying attention to is. Hey, Keith, um, I, have a, I have a question for you while you're talking about that uh, and tying it back to endowments. What are your thoughts about us investing more in uh, enhancing endowments of historically black colleges and universities and other minority serving institutions as a way to, to help bolster their financial viability moving forward? I think it can certainly help, um, particularly at the institute. You know, the reality when we're talking about endowments is that the vast majority of institutions in American higher education have very small endowments. Um, we sometimes are led to believe, based on the numbers that we see at large institutions, that all of these universities have billion-dollar endowments, and it's just not true. Um, so, you know, there are institutions that are struggling financially or or are making it by financially, but they don't have any kind of a strong enough safety net in the event of, of crisis. And I think bolstering endowments can help with that. Similarly, it can help when it comes to offsetting costs for students, attracting and retaining faculty, um, you know, in ways that other sources of, of funding may not be able to do. Um, so yeah, so that's a big one is, is this idea of widening resource inequality and the fact that I don't think that we're doing enough to address that. Um, a second big thing that I pay attention to is one that honestly, and I, this is not going to make me popular, but I think student affairs is very involved in, which is privatization. Um, you know, student affairs has always had an interesting relationship to revenue generation. Um, it is obviously often it's the case organizationally that there are units within student affairs that are expected to generate their own revenue in order to stay operational. Um, but there's been or some fun, the general fund. Or fund the general fund, right. And so that's one of the shifts that we've seen recently is that uh, we've seen student affairs kind of co-opted in, into a revenue generation kind of strategy in ways that I think are inappropriate. And many folks in student affairs don't love probably, but is has become part of their responsibility. Um, but yeah, we're seeing the expansion of kind of outsourcing using third-party vendors, um, public-private partnerships. I'm not saying these things are like the source of all evil in higher ed. Um, I understand where they're coming from and, and why we are pursuing them. Um, but the reality is that um, it can, in some cases, create 
kind of an uneasy relationship when it comes to the mission of our institutions. Um, what are we what are we really about? Um, and uh, to what extent are we just attempting to extract every possible dollar that we can from students in an effort to stay afloat? Um, many of the solutions that I come up with tend to be more at the structural level for that. So I'm not necessarily suggesting that our listeners, um, you know, themselves go out and, and fix this. I think a lot of it kind of comes back around to um, escalating costs and decreasing subsidies. But nevertheless, it's it's got to be a conversation and it's got to be a conversation within student affairs. Um, well, and I see, one of the things I see, Kevin, I'm wondering if you're seeing as well, is institutions who can afford to build their own residence halls, build their own dining hall, do it. Institutions who can't then engage in a, in a public-private partnership, which then uh, is not really what they would prefer to do, but it's the only way we can add a building. It's the only way we can do that. Is that what you see too? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think it's more of the have haves get more and the nots get less. Precisely. And this idea of yeah, kind of feeling boxed in in terms of choices. Um, but, you know, I will be honest and say that I think that there are some decisions that get made that aren't nearly as forced. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, student affairs can be just as guilty as other units of of wanting to chase something that's new and flashy. Um, and sometimes it's with the best of intentions, right? We want to stu serve students well. We want to engage them. We want them to stay. These are all wonderful things. Um, but it doesn't change the fact that, um, you know, it that has to get paid for. And in many instances, we know who's paying for it. Um, and, and that's not ideal. Um, not, not all students have the ability to pay for the party, um, as it were. And so um, that's, that's something that I keep a close eye on from just a pure institutional management perspective, because um, I have seen ways in which some of those relationships with partners have gone south. Um, I've seen ways in which it creates real access and success issues for students. Um, and it makes me uneasy sometimes the ways in which some of our, our colleagues kind of turn a blind eye in terms of really thinking through like who's paying for, for some of these things. Right. Um, and so those are, those are a couple of items that I think, unfortunately, in the near term, I don't see getting better. I see kind of intensifying and accelerating. Let me see if I can real quick throw two brand new grenades that will open mm -hmm. up a whole can of words and see if you very smart experts can clean them up succinctly so we can move to uh, your closing thoughts. So the first one is, uh, well, I'll give them both to you and then you can decide who wants to be in this. I'm, I'm, as I'm listening to this, I'm thinking about the enrollment decline coming, which is going to lower revenues. At the same time, we have, uh, I would think we're seeing real reductions on auxiliaries. I mean, people just can't live on campus in some cases because of COVID. People can't eat in the dining hall because of spacing. That would seem to have a, a real impact. So I, I wonder if you're seeing long-term trends that are going to make the competition, the haves and the have-nots expand. Then the other one, which you can pick up as well, is what about these massive expenditures and revenue generators. I'm thinking big time college athletics with $10 million a year coaches, which costs a lot of money, but also brings in a lot of money. I'm also thinking about medical centers, uh, which are really expensive to run and operate, but also bring in, can bring in a consistent source of revenue. And maybe there's other things that I'm thinking about. Uh, would any of you like to concisely explain some of these things to our audience? And then we'll move Yeah, let me, I'll things. pick up on the enrollment piece and I'll, I'll yeah. let it um, it, to me, this is really fascinating and important. Um, what we're going to see is a real shift. Uh, there, there are going to be two things. One, there's going to be a real uh, impetus for us to start looking at non-traditional students again and re-engage with them. And I watch this at the community college level. 
for a long time, community colleges have been responding in the opposite direction because uh, they've been criticized for failing to be successful in graduating students and, and moving them into the uh, labor market. And so they, instead of trying to better educate the students they have, they try to attract more of the students that they don't, which are the traditional high school uh, graduates who can transfer on to four years. And that, that is, um, I think we're gonna see a shift back towards non-traditional students because they're struggling right now. There just aren't enough of those students mm -hmm. to fill the needs in both the four-year and the two-year sector. Um, but I think one of the things that really needs, we need to think about from a student affairs perspective is uh, we need to focus our energy and attention on what institutions talk about as retention. I think about it as student success, mm -hmm. but we have to be the arbiters of uh, retention initiatives on campuses. Mm -hmm. if, if we aren't, then we, we run the risk of potentially becoming irrelevant because the institution will address it in other ways. And it may mean repurposing or rethinking the roles that some of our professionals play and re-envisioning how we go about the work that we do. And I think we're going to have to do more of that in the coming years. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I wanted to mention something, which is that when we think of higher education, we think of these big time athletic schools. We think of these well-known universities that do have these hospital systems, but the vast majority of students are attending you know, open access, non-selective, regional masters, comprehensive colleges, you know, the community don't even have sector. A team. Yeah, they don't even have housing. They may not even have athletics. Um, so I think it's sort of a shift that like just we as a field need to consider is that the students that, you know, are covered and the institutions that are covered in the news, you know, that are in the headlines, like these are often not representative of the typical university or the typical student. Mm -hmm. And like Nate mentioned, you know, we think about non-traditional students, even our terminology around that with framing traditional versus non-traditional, you know, the majority of students are technically non-traditional. They're returning students, they're adult students, you know, they're, they're at a college to earn a certificate or for continuing education. Um, they're not the students who are going full-time at a four-year institution, you know, going to football games and living on campus. And so broadening sort of the conversation around, uh, you know, the sort of haves and have-nots, like what kind of student demographics and populations are we paying attention to? And, you know, thinking about this sort of more equitable resource allocation, you know, it, it doesn't help society as a whole if just these rich universities are getting richer and we are, you know, diverting resources away from the colleges that really need it and the students that really need it. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree 100% with um, what's already been said. What I would add to this is, I think the whole demographic cliff conversation gets framed in ways that are not particularly helpful for really understanding the issue. Um, it has a tendency to place a lot of blame on institutions for not sufficiently attracting or not being competitive enough, and doesn't attend nearly enough to the fact that as a country, we have in multiple different ways eroded the fabric of society and made it such that it's incredibly difficult to make a living in certain places of the country and to be on strong enough footing to pursue higher education. 
you know, there is no coincidence that some of our institutions that are struggling most on the enrollment front are precisely in the places that have been hardest hit by policies that have neglected large swaths of, of America. Um, and, and as Nate mentioned, you know, this idea of demographic um, cliff doesn't nearly, doesn't do a good enough job of recognizing that there are still a significant number of people that have not had the benefit of attending college and, and, and we should be really working to try to figure out how to better serve that population. So I tend to take that idea of like the demographic decline as a grenade and throw it out the window because I just think it doesn't quite capture what's really going on. And um, yeah, and Amy is 100% right. I mean, from a finance perspective, there's no, there's not really such a thing as athletics supporting a college. Mm. Um, it just doesn't work that way. Um, there's, and if I were to put that on Twitter right now, there'd be a thousand football fans that are like, no, no, no. Look at the ways in which this program does X, Y, and Z. Listen, it's just not there. Um, mm. From a finance, finance perspective, it's easier to think of athletics and medical centers as being legally and financial distinct entities that in some cases create more liability and expenses for institutions than they provide in financial benefits. Um, those big, big, you know, donations coming in by virtue of athletics, it stays in athletics. It's not like that money's drifting over and helping institutions pay the bills. It just doesn't work that way. Um, so anyway, I, you know, tend to be fairly um, opinionated about this. I think big time college sports are just stupid. Um, and don't, they don't, I mean, you can enjoy the sport. That's wonderful. Go for it. But like, I don't, I don't particularly entertain the, uh, idea that they, these are good for colleges as institutions, as educational institutions. Right. Great. Well, thank you for that. Uh, we could just got a couple of minutes left. Uh, so we're running out of time. We always end on the student affairs now podcast with what are you thinking about right now? Uh, so, and, and where can we connect with you? Kevin, let's start with you. Uh, where can we connect with you and what's on your mind right now? Um, tweeting all the time, spending way too much time on Twitter. And I, and I dabble a bit on LinkedIn, um, recently. The big thing I'm thinking about right now is, is staffing issues at colleges and universities and, um, improving the academic workplace. Um, and so these have big financial implications, you know, in terms of meeting our goals as institutions, um, and, you know, the ability for American higher education to deliver on the promise. Um, and big, big, a big conversation in student affairs right now. We're, we're losing people, we're losing talent, and um, we're not acting fast enough to figure out solutions to that. Great. Yeah, we need to be much more innovative and creative about addressing this. Nate, what, where can we connect with you? And what's, uh, what's with you now? Sure. So I, I am actually not on Twitter, and I, I do avoid it. Um, Although my daughter might say I should probably get with that. Um, LinkedIn and, and email are great. Um, in terms of what I'm following now, it really is about financial literacy. For a long time, and I continue to do work in schools to help simplify the financial aid application process. Mm -hmm. But increasingly, we're finding that that's just not enough. That um, this is an investment that students and families make once in their, or maybe a couple of times in their lives. And they need more guidance and education about how to navigate that throughout, not just at the beginning and not just at the end, which is typically what we do now. We're starting a financial literacy program here in part in response to students who are leaving the institution because they can't afford it. Uh, in part in response to the food insecurity issues and the recognition that so many of our students don't really have what they need. And in part, the, the growing complexity of the financial aid system that is intolerant of students 
taking additional time to figure out their path. We still have two thirds of our students who will come in and change their majors before they, uh, before they finish. That's gonna extend their time to degree if we don't do a better job helping them understand what that path is gonna look like. Great. Amy, what's with you now? I've been thinking a lot about student loan repayments. So right now, and just during the pandemic, um, the students who do have federal loans, they're not, they haven't been required to pay, you know, make continuing payments on them, but that ends, this COVID-19 emergency relief for federal student loans ends on January 31st, 2022. And so borrowers will have to restart their loan payments. And we know that the pandemic has had wider negative consequences for employees in lower paid jobs, you know, such as the service industry. So I'm, I'm really curious how the restarting of loan repayments might widen existing income disparities. Uh, and from a kind of broader policy space perspective, you know, there's been ideas thrown around uh, about forgiving $10,000 of student loan debt or even up to $50,000 of loans from the very liberal side of, um, you know, Congress. But something like that getting passed is going to be really slim, I would say. So it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how how loan repayments, once they start start up again, you know, who is differentially affected by that and how that might, you know, again, widen, widen existing gaps that we have. Yeah. Oh, and I will say, yeah, you can contact me at, on email or I am on Twitter. Awesome. Well, thanks so much to each of you for your insights and your expertise and for taking the time to join us. Uh, today on Student Affairs Now. I also want to thank our sponsors today, EverFi and Anthology. Uh, Anthology, uh, transform your student experience and advance co-curricular learning with Anthology Engage. With this technology platform, you're able to easily manage student organizations, efficiently plan events, and truly understand student involvement and continuously improve your engagement efforts at your institution. Learn more at anthology.com engage. And EverFi, for over 20 years, EverFi has been the trusted partner for 1,500 colleges and universities with nine efficacy studies behind their courses. You will have confidence that you're using the standard of care for student safety and well-being with the results to prove it. Transform the future of your institutions and the community you serve. Learn more at everfi.com slash studentaffairsnow. Huge shout out to Nana Brosi, who makes us all look and sound good. And if you're listening today and not already receiving our weekly newsletter, please visit our website and join there. You can get the newest and latest episode in your inbox each Wednesday morning. Thanks to our guest. I'm your host, Keith Edwards. Uh, thanks to everyone who's watching and listening. Make it a great week, all.